Welcome to episode 95 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Okay, welcome back to another episode. Um, as I was preparing my tip of the week this week, I had one ready and then I realized that the little hack that I was using does not work the same on a PC as it does a Mac. So I had to scrap that one in case people were not using a Mac. But the the one that I used, just so I'll tell you real quick what it was, is I love using my trackpad either an external trackpad or the one on my laptop to zoom in and zoom out on websites. Um, but I I always double check with my IT department, who is my husband, <laughs> before I give tips like that to make sure that they're not computer or platform specific. Um, and he informed me that it does not work the same on a Windows. So that was going to be my tip. And twice in one day, Stacy Krause came to my rescue. <laughs> I was this morning I used she had just posted a um St. Patrick's Day uh new of her speech libs so that was what I used in therapy today and then she's also providing my tip of the week um and it was very apt that she posted this because I've had a lot of questions about this too spring seems to be kind of the time of year where everyone's thinking about what they're going to do next year and I always almost every year have at least two or three uh former colleagues or other professionals that start uh emailing me or direct messaging me on different platforms about switching to telepractice. And Stacy's had some similar experiences. So she went ahead and wrote a blog post talking about kind of the frequently asked questions for people switching over. Um, so I'll just hit a couple of them that I've seen very often and what I think about it and what she thinks about it too. So uh, some of the biggest ones are pay. And she um, admits that it's the biggest question and one that she does not have an answer for. And neither do I. But uh, she has a similar thoughts to mine in that you can find a wide variety in the pay that different companies provide. And there are some great um, Facebook groups that even have uh, Excel sheets where they're comparing different companies and their different compensations. Uh, but what she has found and what I have found also is that for me and where the area where I live, it was not a pay cut for me to switch from doing in-person therapy to telepractice. In fact, where I would, had come from in, uh, in a early intervention program and um, other, you know, school-based programs. It was actually a pay raise, which was really great. But I did have uh, the other part of that is switching from being an employee with benefits to a 1099 employee. And that's something you want to consider too. Um, I did see is I was uh renewing my intentions to return with uh, presence learning next year, that that is something that they are starting to offer more. And they asked if I would be interested in that. So there's, I think that is something that's coming up more often. It used to be far, few and far between the W2 positions, but that is something that people can find um, other things. I think that we're getting less of but I used to get more of earlier was the like, how do I get materials and things like that? I think everyone kind of has figured that part out. And, uh, and then, you know, things like, do you miss working with people or do you feel alone or isolated? The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would any day of the week, I would trade not having to do the like kind of, I don't know, um, small talk with people and things like that, the ones that you maybe don't want to talk to. Uh, I love just getting to focus on what I do with my students and going in and getting my job done and being with my family and working part-time and setting my own schedule. The benefits far outweigh any perceived costs of that. So that's kind of my mine and Stacy's um, response to some of the frequently asked questions. Yeah, I'm glad she did that. Because yeah. we all get those questions all the time. Um, 
and I, I do think people, if you're very extra, you know, <clears throat> if you're very, uh, I'm, I'm more introverted as, as a personality and, and my wife's quite the opposite. Uh, and if you definitely need, if you're more of an extrovert and you need that human contact on a daily basis, then you may not get that as much right. with telepractice, but uh, if if that doesn't bother you, or you can find different ways to fulfill that, you know, that extrovert kinds of need of of connecting with other people, like socially and other ways, mm-hmm. then it, then it's a you know telepractice is going to be a great option. But I could see where some people may not sort of take to it as easily as others. Mm-hmm. But, Did I miss any? Are there any other questions that you feel like you've gotten asked by people that are switching over? Uh, I mean, I think you've touched the on the big ones. I think the you know the, they always want to know what technology you're using mm-hmm. and which platform you might be using. Um, the the pay is is always a big one, and reimbursement uh, you know are, are going to be the you know people who are thinking about it and doing, you know, jumping in either with a company or setting up their own private practice. They're trying to figure that out. Um, but those, I would say those are the biggest ones uh, yeah. that, that usually come up with me is, is not necessarily how to do it, but what platform are you using and what's the technology and then how, and then what the cost is for that technology. Mm-hmm. If you're like subscribing to a platform to use and then, how do I get paid? Right. So, but yeah, those are the main things that I usually hear. Same as you. Yeah. Yep. So we have, uh, on the podcast today, we have, uh, Dr. Leslie Edwards Gaither, who's, uh, just, uh, published a new book, uh, co wrote a book and, uh, we'll be talking with the, her co-author next week. Uh, but, She's done some research looking at e-helpers and 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 sort of analyzing that relationship between the telepractitioner and that e-helper. And uh, she's done some other stuff, too, that she's going to talk about, which is really exciting. So I'm looking forward to hearing from Leslie. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Can you uh, share a bit more about your background? Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm happy to uh, be here virtually, audio uh, and the like. Uh, Well, my background uh, as far as in uh, speech language pathology and telepractice is a bit of a winding road, like I think a lot of us. Uh, However, but uh, currently uh, I have my, I've received my doctorate from Howard University in Washington, D.C. My master's uh, was from Miami University, and then I also have a bachelor's, so I'm a double degree from Howard University. Uh, My background and interests uh, really include and have always been even uh, from my undergrad to um, graduate work, those intersections of communication culture and technology. Uh, my master's thesis at Miami University was on the competency of speech language pathology graduate students in treating culturally diverse populations. So yes, and that was some decades ago. We're still uh, kind of uh, in learning about those topics. But throughout um, my career since then, I started looking into those the connections of technology and what we do in speech language pathology. Um, it really started with a uh, one of my first positions was on the reservation in Rapid City, South Dakota. Oh, wow. And there, uh, I know any, anyone gone to Rapid City, South Dakota out there? <laughs> uh, it's mostly known for uh, Mount Rushmore. Right, right. And yep. that's about it. 
uh, one McDonald's <laughs> 400 miles. You know, if you don't get the McDonald's in Rapid City, there's one 400 miles away. Um, <laughs> but in that position, um, I was uh, primarily assessing uh, students uh, K through 12 in the Lakota Sioux tribe. And what I found after assessing and assessing and assessing that number one, wow, do speech pathologists have to drive three hours a day to <laughs> get to their clients? Because I was, I had right. to load a van. And so at that point, I said, there's got to be a better way. Now, at that point, I won't tell you what year, but let's just say Zoom wasn't available right. way back then. <laughs> um, but I noticed two things. Number one, there had to be a better way to get to students who were in underserved populations, who were culturally diverse, who were remote. And number two, I also um, noticed that, wow, some of the assessments I was giving, what, you know, in, even in person, they weren't customized for that population. So there is can, can, uh, came about um, my career from then to now, those intersections of communication, culture, and technology. That's awesome. And so did you do some experimentation with telepractice with the Lakota people? At that time, not exactly. <laughs> I had ideas um, of, you know, being very, very young, uh, right out of college. I had ideas of, you know, how can, you know, we, you know, we did a lot of face-to-face. We did a, a mm-hmm. lot of, but I spent maybe 60% of my day in a car. Mm-hmm. So, and, but when, once again, at that time, the technology just wasn't there and we were just trying to figure out, well, how can we get to the clients? Um, I didn't start with technology until the position after that. Uh, I was, I, with, when I was assessing those populations, like I said, I noticed, wow, there were kind of patterns that they were getting incorrect on these standardized assessments. I uh, then was able to get a position as a research director with the standardized, with a company that was publishing standardized tests and working on some of the most published standardized tests from there. At that position, I was still working with the communication and culture, but I, they were thinking about, well, maybe we could make some uh, software uh, to help train SLPs because going on the road all over the country was expensive. It mm-hmm. was time consuming. So that's where my technology came into play a bit. Um, and I noticed that the SLPs who were working on the test were in one room and all of those coders and all of the tech <laughs> people were behind closed doors, literally right. in another. And we didn't speak the same language, nor did we communicate in the same way, but we needed to. So then I started working a little bit in software, um, learning the logic of coding, um, telling them, you know, no, we need it like this. We as communication experts need it to be like this. And you speak this language. I speak this language. Can we speak the same (laughs) language? So that's when I started getting comfortable in it. Um, At that Mm -hmm. point, telepractice still wasn't going on as much, at least not in our field, looking at the background now, we know it was going on in the seventies and with the hardwire phones and things like that. Um, But at this point we didn't have a lot of research, but I still knew that we could get there. There was something going on in our field and with technology. Um, I didn't start uh, telepractice until about 2010. And some of you might be thinking, wow, really? (laughs) Either that was, you know, some people see that as early. Um, And uh, it was primarily with clients that were either bullied out of school uh, due to their communication difference or disorder uh, that were, yes, in remote populations and remote areas, like I grew up in in Ohio, um, or they were culturally diverse um, populations where an SLP, to be quite honest, did not want to go and they had a hard time filling those positions. So that's a little bit of the track there. That's what one of my first um, teletherapy positions was in a juvenile detention unit. So it was very similar. That was, that was probably the only way I would want to serve that population because I did see things like, you know, like uh, drills or actual scary situations where it was like everyone hit the deck and they were gone. And I could hear things going on in the background, and I was so glad I was on a computer. So I think there's a lot of situations pre-COVID and post-COVID that just really lend themselves um, to having telepractice be the best way to serve those clients. Absolutely, Kim. I I had a a, a juvenile detention experience myself, and I also remember uh, the scheduling being difficult. Um, But when those students were... uh, 
available and read, you know, readily available for sessions. I remember a lot of them saying it was the best portion or part of their day. Yeah. I, the other thing I found, though, is sometimes you had internet issues when you have something like, you know, three foot concrete walls around every <laughs> building. Mm-hmm. So that was always an adventure, too. Absolutely. Yes. Internet issues. Wow. I think we all have a, <laughs> a, a, a tale or two uh, right. about that, even today, right? Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Still, still not everywhere. I mean, internet or at least fast internet is in everywhere. Uh, so, so maybe with the infrastructure stuff they're talking about at the federal level, we'll see more, see improvements. Absolutely. Access is definitely still an issue. Uh, and I think it will continue to be. However, I think the federal level, absolutely. I'm still seeing at a state to state, county to county uh, kind of grassroots effort. Right. I agree. I agree. So let's talk about your your time at at Howard University coming back as a doctoral student. Uh, yes, I think it's uh, it's been a couple of years now. So some of the trauma, uh, I think that all... <laughs> Doctoral students. Um, I now only remember probably ten percent of the trauma uh, and ninety percent, and I and I I mean that with all due respect to anyone uh, uh, who's entered the doctoral uh, space currently in uh, or post. Uh, so I'm with you. Um, yes. So uh, I, uh, you, someone, someone would say I, you know. There's always a there's always a different track, and no one has that same track of how we get there. I will say that it came for me uh, a couple of decades after I initially um, thought it would. Uh, however, it really came at the right time um, for me. I had already uh, been a practitioner. Uh, in every setting you can imagine, from VA hospitals to reservations. Um, And it's also after I had been in the telepractice kind of arena after seven years. So I had probably 20 years of experience before uh, I received my doctorate. And part of that, as I said, was in publishing. Part of it was private practice, VA trainee, uh, and even in in the tech space. So once I got to Howard University, I really came with the uh, kind of culture and technology uh, kind of idea that I wanted to do a study and uh, my dissertation on the intersections of those two. If you can imagine, it was kind of at this time, this is pre-COVID, telepractice is still seen as niche, so to speak, as something certain people did, definitely not everyone. And there were, I'm not sure about you know, Todd and uh, Kim, there were also maybe some naysayers at the time about yeah. telepractice. I was even, uh, you know, when I, part of that initial dissertation and uh, first year um, process of kind of talking through what you're like to study. And when I would talk it through, you know, I would get some of that, you know, I thought telepractice were, was for maybe the complacent SLP. And almost having to defend not only what I wanted to do, but also defend telepractice. And, and this is right. from, from around the board, not just, you know, within the doctoral space. And of course, not just within Howard University, but period. I think a lot of us were set up to defend telepractice. So um, I will say that there were points in times I thought, wow, maybe I should just do culture. <laughs> um, because, of course, Howard is uh, world renowned for its graduates uh, regarding cultural linguistic diversity. Long history from Ovet, uh, Dr. Uh, Oveta Harris, who is my advisor with AAC and, and culture and linguistic diversity to Kay Payne uh, with the praxis and what she's doing and has done over the. So I will say I came in a little bit left. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, but um, as, as, Things went on um, in my, actually the last semester of my dissertation work, COVID hit. (laughs) So my last semester was spring of 2020, Mm -hmm. January and February of 2020. I'm in my uh, kind of uh, of data collection phase. So I'd already gone through a lot of the, the, the work. So I'm looking at data and then COVID hit. So my dissertation was provided. I was one of the, I think one of the first 
in the department to do it via Zoom. <laughs> and it was very interesting to defend my dissertation on telepractice during a pandemic uh, using Zoom. Really? You could- yeah. <laughs> and you avoided the urge to um, say, I told you so <laughs> throughout the whole thing, right? right? Let's just say I didn't have to say it. <laughs> <laughs> at all. Um, absolutely did not have to say it. It was, it was just one of those, I don't know, like I said, I cannot say many positive things about the pandemic, how many of us would, but as far as my study, it was timely um, because we all know what we needed to do. Um, and I've always thought that telepractice is a tool and my dissertation approach was that in that way, it's a tool in our toolbox. Right. Um, uh, and when we are able to provide the service, um, regardless of the, the necessity, or maybe it's even hybrid where we pull it out when we need to, that it is something I think we as speech language pathologists need to do. Um, it needs to, uh, of course, we need more research, we need more efficacy. But once again, our job is to meet the scope of practice of our clients. And if it is, uh, and we can, we know that it's a tool that can be used. Um, and uh, I'm happy to be a part of, of the growing body of research on it. And so what were some of the results? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I, I think it's called a, um, like a commercial uh, segment on a dissertation. So I'll try to give you the, the, the uh, 90 second version. But, sure. uh, but my dissertation, I was an ethnographic study mm-hmm. of the use of the e-helper in mm-hmm. online speech and language pathology. So uh, rather than doing, you know, I, looking at the body of research, we have research on children, of course, on adults, we've got mm-hmm. an, an assessment, which is really the area I love. But then I thought, well, what's not out there? And, and especially even from my time as working via telepractice, how that e-helper, that facilitator uh, that we use, when that broke down, that physical part, you know, helper that we had with the student, when that communication broke down or when that was not available, I found that I was less effective. So that was essentially my study. Um, what are the tools needed? What is the role of that e-helper or facilitator um, in speech language pathology? And so I um, had several e-helpers within my study who were already matched in schools with clients. And then I uh, looked at the SLP too, but it was mainly on, I knew what the SLP did, but it's mainly on how that SLP and that e-helper work together. Um, I found three major, uh, I would say, applicable findings. And some of them, I think a lot of SLPs, when they hear them, like, yeah, I I found that too, but I didn't know what it was called. Um, But the three areas, I found that the e-helper was used interpersonally. So they were a bridge with that SLP, either affirming or clarifying or connecting with that client. So that's the interpersonal part that I found the e-helper, their role in. I found that they were part of a therapeutic portion of what we do. Not once, I don't want to think everyone that they were replacing the SLP, not at all. The SLP is still the moderator, the facilitator, uh, the change maker in the therapeutic process. But the e-helper was also um, helped assist or facilitate that behavior management, reinforcing uh, behavior management or positive behaviors, and of course, assisting. So there were certain therapeutic elements that they helped that uh, SLP get through. And so that's what I call mm-hmm. teletherapeutic uh, actions and culture. And then the third theme I found um, with the um, with the e-helper, of course, is that they were often a telepractice champion. And some of us have already used that term and I've seen it in the research, um, but they were that technology manager. They either created or knew or you with the ESLP the telepractice vocabulary, they had to be conduits for that. So they were that on-site telepractice champion. So those were the three areas. Once again, they were like interpersonal, like affirming, clarifying, and connecting with the student for that SLP, a bit of teletherapeutic, so with behavior management, reinforcing, and assisting, and then finally a a champion. They were that technology manager and were, you know, like a lot of the verbiage and vocabulary. Um, And I hope a lot of the listeners will say, well, you know what? Yeah, I think I see that too, (laughs) Um, but didn't know what to call it. So those were um, some of the results of my study. 
That's great. So was there a certain age or population group that you were using in your study? Yes, they were SLPs um, and uh, e-helpers assigned in K through 12 schools, but primarily those SLPs and e-helpers that I studied were K through 5. Okay. That's what I was going to say because I have, I've worked um, K through 5 and now I'm in ninth through 12th right now. And the role changes for sure. I, you know, I think my e-helper right now kind of make sure the kids log on. I think sometimes she hands them treats to get them to want to come (laughs) on their way out. But other than that, I don't use her a whole lot. And I do have like a more um, low support needs uh, population that I have right now. So it, it varies, I think, but I, I love those areas that you found to consider when you're working with that e-helper. Thank you. And, and you, um, it's an excellent point that the role does change. I would love to replicate this study or maybe, maybe someone who's listening would be inspired um, because I think uh, the e-helper and the facilitator role does change middle school, high school, K through 12, or we could just isolate K. <laughs> right? That, that could be its whole pre-K and K could be its own study. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, I just recently was really kind of looking at the what I call the uncharted frontier uh, with telepractice and facilitators and really with uh, the area of swallowing mm-hmm. and uh, online um, modified barium swallow studies, or especially um, in clinical swallow evaluations, even more. Um, I think that's really unchartered uh, right now. Um, we have there are some wonderful universities out there doing research, but I think the average clinician is still scratching their head, thinking, "Wow, uh, telepractice <laughs> swallowing right. evaluations." Right. So I would love to see that study too. Right. And Leslie, so- did you? Sorry. Did, sorry, did you did you uh, take a look at the training of the e-helper? Was that consistent was or inconsistent or how, how did that work out? Ah, definitely the latter. And I don't think you, Todd or Kim, are, <laughs> are listeners are surprised. surprised. Right. Um, and that was really chapter five. Chapter five of a, of a dissertation is really where we get to go after what should change, what's next. And two major, um, I think, ways that we need to push forward in telepractice, and especially with e-helpers and facilitators, is number one, what are we calling them? Uh, I think there are, there's, you know, e- I think I found there were e-helpers, facilitators, um, uh a helper. Um, you all could probably name some too, but we didn't have consistency over what to call them. And of course, had not how to train either. And that training that I found, uh, and even in the, the research too, it goes from nothing to winging it to uh, customized checklists that maybe we've um, kind of facilitated. And then I know there are some um, other at the University of Kentucky is kind of looking at it too, coming, trying to find more standardized, um, but still trying to roll that out. So I think we have a long way to go. However, I think there are wonderful researchers and clinicians out there that already have some of this together, but it's just not in a form where it's widely distributed or it's just when telepractice is coming about, it's kind of like, let's go and we'll figure it out later. Yeah. Right. And I've had everything from a um, assigned special ed aide that was helping me with that to like literally the music teacher and the librarian <laughs> who they just know how, how to log the kids on. And that was the extent of their training. <laughs> so that some um, more support and more formalized, this is who this person should be. And this is how they should be trained would be great. Mm-hmm. I would say you have to get the schools on board with it too. Cause I know that, um, Lack of funding was some of the reasons why I lost my aid and had the music teacher. Um, so I think that's something that they have to see as a value too. Excellent point. I would agree. I would agree. I think they're on the medical side, I believe in the um, uh, American Telemedicine Association, they have a facilitator uh, kind of uh, certificate. 
that for that is I'm, uh, through a university. I'm sorry, I'm not able to remember the university right now, but it's on the ATA uh, website. You're right. I think once maybe the value should come, I don't know if the value has to come from a certificate, if the value has to come from I have been trained or there's established training, um, but I think there there has to be something in, in order for telepractice to be successful, in, and especially when there are high numbers, high caseloads, not just talking about one student uh, assigned to one therapist, mm-hmm. that we need some type of standardized process um, and resources. Agree wholeheartedly. And I, I think it was ATA or somewhere I saw some type of like a curriculum of training the e-helper and I forget where it was now, but uh, I know some there it's out there somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and uh, so, so that was dissertation. And I, I just wanted to mention that I have my copy of your book. <laughs> I just got it this week. Well, yeah. Monday, I think it came in the mail. So, how did the book come up, come about? And you should know that everything you tell us, I'm going to ask Melissa next week because she's coming on next week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I spoke to Melissa just this week, too. Well, thank you so much for mentioning it. Yes, I am uh, the co-author um, of Telepractice, uh, a clinical guide for speech language pathologists. Uh, and how it came about, I will give my co-author um, uh, the absolute credit, she um, approached me to uh, help her co-author uh, the book. Um, Melissa and I have worked together on different trainings, uh, and collaborated uh, probably over the last 10, 12 years, I think, um, on different projects. Um, right. And I think we complemented one another well. I, like I said, I come from uh, the background of, you know, culture, um, of uh, cultural humility. Um, what I found when I was you know, in my 10 years of being a, a telepractitioner, um, that I was often called when we have that SLP who is living uh, in their home, I'll say from Ohio, where I'm from, but they're treating that uh, student who may be bilingual um, or maybe limited English proficiency in uh, Southern Texas, or maybe we have an SLP in South Florida that's treating uh, a client in California. Um, so some of my contributions in the textbook were on the technology side, as far as you know, what's next, um, as far as especially uh, artificial intelligence, um, and on the uh, cultural side too, as well as a few case studies from my time uh, too. Sure, sure. Well, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I've just read some parts of it, but I think it's excellent so far. And so I, I commend you guys for, for getting another book out there. We need, we need more resources. And Absolutely. For sure. Um, and so you just, you just uh, mentioned artificial intelligence and, and so, what are some of your your upcoming or, or future endeavors? What are what are you looking at? Because this is always interesting to me. Is what's what's around the corner, in the next five years? Yes, uh, and and kudos also to you, uh, taught on your book also uh, you. uh, for telepractice. I think um, a growing body is out there. Um, you know what's next? It's very interesting because we started writing the book in early 2020. And I think had we written the book today, there's so many differences. Uh, and I think I know others are out there um, writing textbooks now, uh, hopefully on telepractice or clinical guides. And what I think is going to happen five years from now, I think we will hopefully have another paradigm shift. Um, the paradigm when we started writing the book was this was for almost, almost all of those SLPs, probably the 75% out there that had never used telepractice. And now everyone by force. <laughs> right. um, if, I, if I met someone that said, you know what, I haven't used Zoom or a telepractice uh, or a platform, I would think, wow, where have what, you come yeah, from? <laughs> what, exactly. What rock what? were you, have you been living under? <laughs> So we've got a real paradigm, and I think it's a real um, kind of balancing point of, wow, where are we going to be in five years? Um, but once again, I think that some of the trauma that we've been through um, with the digital anxiety, 
the digital regret. <laughs> I think there's <laughs> the critical regret. terms for them really now. Yes, um, yes. The fatigue that we have mm-hmm. will have subsided a bit. And I hope that we are now going to see telepractice as not this something that's just um nebulous, but right. that it, it is a tool, just like it's a tool that we have um, a, uh, an assessment on the shelf. Um, it's a tool that we will have our iPad uh, readily available. Um, do I think we will be um, using uh, teleportation? Um, <laughs> I, I know there's a few, uh, you know, and holograms to meet with our clients. Mm-hmm. You know what? I think that could be out there. Honestly, it can be out there right now. And I know some universities mm-hmm. have uh, worked on um, that. I think it's going to be drawn back a little bit. I do think mm-hmm. we are going to be using artificial art intelligence in order to aid our mm-hmm. Um, practice and how telepractice fits into that. Imagine um, you are working uh, with an outpatient client and they are working on some swallowing exercises. Maybe they have a device that rolls up into the cloud. You can mm-hmm. see their, you know, their level of strength for the swallowing for that Mendelssohn or that um, mm-hmm. what I consider the uh, the far off, um, you know, hard swallow, <laughs> like what, what is a hard, how, you know, it's right. always been <laughs> kind of, um, something, well, how hard did they swallow, mm-hmm. um, or the effort effortful swallow, but imagine some of that information is hooked into a device that hooks into the cloud. And so that they come to see you in person once a month, but the rest of the sessions twice a week, once a week for six months, you use telepractice and you're able to get that information uploaded from uh, the online on the cloud. I think that right. is not that, that far away. Right. Um, and I think I know OTs and PTs are using some of that information now too. Yeah. Just, just this past week, we had Sue Whitney on from uh, Pittsburgh and she kind of described a similar situation with AI for physical therapy and how, you know, she said, you know, wouldn't it be great, you know, that the AI could measure, you you would set it at a certain level. And then as the patient is doing the exercises for PT and improving, the AI would recognize that and then raise the, the target in real time, you know, as, as they're meeting those goals. And so by the time they've come back in to see you or see you through telepractice, they've already had a lot of treatment because they've they've kept to hopefully kept practicing and got better and better and better Uh, instead of waiting on you to treat them uh you know for that hour or whatever you know a week later or a month later and so i and i was instantly just like you're saying uh, thinking about kids who stutter you know or adults or swallowing or you know all these other areas where i think it could equally be just as uh could work just as well yeah, right. Even like vocabulary. Um, I know mm-hmm. it just reminded me my uh, own daughter uses this uh, program called Lexia that the schools have used pretty widely. And it is kind of it's an intuitive like, okay, they got this wrong. I know that we need to go and do some more exercises on this, um, this reading skill or things like that. So something for vocabulary that's like, okay, they know these five words that you assigned me last week. Now I need five more instead of waiting till next week to get another five set of words to teach my child and things like that. Absolutely. You both um, bring up, I think, kind of segueing to, you know, where we're going to be. And I think those high, you both brought up what I call the hybrid model um, of telepractice, which is my preferred model. Uh, When I walk into the room and you both also, people maybe, oh, you're the telepractice person. (laughs) Um, Yes, we are. However, we haven't forgotten in person. Uh, And I think that's within the next five years, I think we're going to figure, have more research, have more clinicians, maybe going toward this hybrid model, Um, maybe by choice, um, maybe due to the the wanting to, you know, pull back on, but uh, on the completely online model. And then I think we'll also have clients that once again, we'll say, you know what? I kind of like staying in the telepractice model. Can we find a happy medium? So I think hybrid will also be something we're kind of figure out a bit more, um, trying to figure out well, how many in-person sessions are needed. How many tele, we know telepractice as you know, a complete model works, but what about mm-hmm. hybrid? Does the efficacy go up, down, at what age? Right. Um do we have better efficacy? So I'd love to see more hybrid studies too. Mm-hmm. 
I, yeah, I agree. Go ahead. If gas prices keep going up too, everyone's <laughs> going to want to do telepractice right. again. <laughs> we won't need COVID. We'll just watch. We can't drive anywhere, so you we have drive. to. You got it. <laughs> hey, my husband has a hybrid car. I love it. <laughs> I'm not ready to go all electric uh, yet, but the hybrid is, is a a way to go. So, um, but But I know I worked in early intervention for years and that was other than salaries. That was the second uh, biggest cost for the early intervention program was transportation, paying for all of our mileage to go. I used to drive two hours one way to see some clients. So Come on to South Dakota. You could drive another hour. (laughs) (laughs) I probably could have. We are, um, we went all the way from like the North, uh, East side of Utah to all the way over to the border of Nevada was our catchment area. So it was, it was very big. (laughs) Well, now they have all the, what, the drilling and stuff. And so Mm -hmm. is that in South Dakota where they can't? The housing has gone up because it can't house everyone. And That's actually North Dakota. I North mean, Dakota. housing housing has definitely gone up in South Dakota, um, but um, in North Dakota, the pipeline, yes, mm. absolutely, yes. Well, uh, but there's a there's there's a if it's not uh, one thing, then I I remember I was uh, stopped one day by a bison, um, so that prevented <laughs> me. Uh, from providing therapy that day, if I had uh, the internet uh, and a, a hotspot back then, I'm sure that would have helped. <laughs> so the old bison crossing gets you every time. Every single time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, a couple of other things that I would definitely like to add, though, and, and look sure. to see your perspectives also um, about where we will be in five years, um, licensure and the licensure compact yes. and how that uh, affects telepractice. And then, um, not that I'm an expert, there are some that can speak to it so much, uh, more fluently than I, but payers and insurance and coverage. Um, those are some things I think will be long haul issues, but something in at the grassroots roots level, I think that we can all contribute to. You know, I think one of the things that, that I would like to see going forward is that our training programs see this as needing to train students, grad students in the field to be able to do both equally as well. And so that in a sense, it is sort of automatically a part of our practice. And the expectation is we are delivering services both ways because we want to use this tool to put the best diagnostic and treatment program in place. And most patients probably would benefit more from a hybrid approach than one or the other. And so I think, I think we, we need to, in a sense, redefine the, the purpose of telepractice within our field, because everything's going in this direction in terms of digital uh, resources and, and shopping and, and everything, everything we do now is using technology. And so that's, that's how I approach my students is that I want you to feel equally as comfortable in, in person versus telepractice and, and, and not miss a beat when you're having those patients or coming up with a treatment uh, program. And so I think those are the kinds of things we need to, we need to maybe even expand ASHA's concept of what telepractice is. Uh, It's not just for some patients or it's not just some few people. Everyone's going to be doing it. I mean, we had to do it for COVID, but going forward, it's just going to be the expectation, the standard of care. Absolutely. Um, My my two cents. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think you are with what you're doing at the, in, at the level of training um, in programs uh, is where I think the growth is going to happen um, and needs to happen. I can say in my uh, experience with academia, whether um, being a student, um, and I'm currently uh, teaching at uh, George Washington University, mm-hmm. and then guest mm-hmm. lecturing um, at different programs across the country, there mm-hmm. seems to be a wide and vast gap between programs, some that are fully in and mm-hmm. invested and some that are um, 
not just pulling back on the technology portion and communication sciences disorders, but maybe I would hate to go so far as rejection of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and I'm not sure of, of uh, how to, where to start other than grow where I'm planted. <laughs> uh, I understand. You understand where I'm coming from there, yes. Well, and and to be very honest, and I, I would say this to my colleagues uh, at any university, that universities sometimes are not the fastest group or, or faculty are not the fastest group to change. You know, you think, oh, university, cutting edge, everyone's, you know, trying to figure out the best way. Heck no. I mean, <laughs> uh you, you sometimes you have to push because people get, you know, this is the way I do it. This is the way I teach. This is the way I, you know, this is the information I'm, I've been teaching this way for, you know, all these years. And that's the problem. So uh, some changes are going to have to take place after people die <laughs> uh, and, or retire, hopefully first, then they die. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but that's, that was, someone was telling me the other day about another project. He says, you know, sometimes change just, won't happen until people right. die. I was like, oh, okay. You're not it's playing on making that happen, are you? And he says, no, no, no. He says, just have to wait until they leave, you know, yeah. whichever way they want to leave. Uh, and then you see changes. But I, I agree with you 100%. I think there are some uh, training programs based on my interactions with different groups and faculty around the country that have gone all in, like, this is the way we have to go. COVID was sort of the warning you know, the warning bell that rang and now we have to really figure this out. And then we have quite the opposite where people say, oh, we did that for COVID. It was a, you know, sort of a band-aid. We did that. We got through it. Now we're going to, you know, go back to what we were doing before. So, and I, it's a it's whole cycle too. The more, the more training we get, the more that it will push things forward, like the interstate compact. And I think the more that it will be recognized that that's something that's needed. And I think having a standard of this is the knowledge that you need to have to be a tele, telepractitioner will kind of push that forward that people aren't scared of. Well, if we have an interstate compact, how do we know that people are, you know, providing a certain level of services in our state? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Just great points all around. Um, you know, when I think of, you know, what are the barriers that we have um, within programs, but then also within the culture of who we are as communication experts? Um, mm-hmm. I think none of us were, you know, in our intro- introduction to uh, human communication, we're given a digital communication uh, <laughs> section. Um, right. you know, we're taught in-person, interpersonal, intrapersonal, mm-hmm. uh, and the like. And then I think when telepractice came about and as, as it grew, there came this bias mm-hmm. um, about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not going to you know, say where that Mm-hmm. We all might have a, uh, you know, where that stems from, because I could even say, well, maybe I even had a bias early on as I was <laughs> um, an active mm-hmm. practitioner. Um, but then we had to think, well, how can we combat that? And you're right. I think um, access and licensure will help. Um, uh, reimbursement uh, will help. Mm-hmm. But I think, yes, uh, a changing of the guard I, in many levels <laughs> um, uh, will help. Uh, will help too. Um, it's here. It's here to stay. Now we have to figure out what to do with it because all we're doing is giving increased access to our clients. And um, for a lot of SLPs, this is their preferred method of employment also. Right. How can that be a negative? That's right. And I think, you know, another area is that, you know, within speech language pathology, when we th- talk about tele- <clears throat> excuse me, talk about telepractice, we usually you know, the, the mind automatically goes to AAC, which is obviously an important part of our field. But we need to expand how technology is used to serve our patients, our clients, and not sort of put it in this sort of container over here. Oh, that's AAC. Uh, and I, I've brought this up, you know, with faculty, and they're like, why would we think about telepractice? That's not, that's something else, you know. But no, it's about how are we going to interact with our patients? You know, does that patient need technology to communicate? Then yes, 
that is AAC. But then that person may need services through telepractice. You know, so it's it's like this very um, fo- very limited mindset in terms of what technology is and can do. So Absolutely. anyway. Well, Leslie, we will solve all the world's problems here. That's one of the things we try to do. Yes, it will. It keeps us employed, doesn't it? Uh, It keeps us writing. Yeah, that's why I have no hair is because of those things. (laughs) So, Leslie, now is probably the most important time of our conversation uh, on the podcast. Okay. Okay. And so we call this our moment of Zen. And so we have some questions we want to ask you that... You can answer in any way that you want. Okay. Okay. All right. No right. pleading the fifth, though. No pleading the okay. fifth. Okay. Uh, and you can. I have. I have three different lists of questions: A, B, and C. Which list do you want? Oh, um, I'm a fan of all of those letters, <laughs> uh, but I will say um, I prefer A's. <laughs> you prefer A. Okay. Very good. So, Leslie. What is the most used app on your phone? The most used app on my phone? Mm-hmm. Probably Instagram. <laughs> there you go. I, I am becoming a, you know, I'm not a, a face, I'm not a social media person, huge, but mm-hmm. um, what I think SLPs are doing as far as social mm-hmm. justice, mm-hmm. Um, informing one another, uh, mm-hmm. educating one another. Instagram uh, is quickly becoming one of my go-tos. Yep. I That's everything I've learned about neurodiversity in the past two years has mm-hmm. been from Instagram <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost exclusively. And I think that's, yeah, kind of those like grassroots kind of movements within our field. That's where they're from. I love it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would agree. I follow um, quite a few. Um, some are Howard grads like JRC SLP and mm-hmm. uh, um, and uh, informed SLP. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we talked about grassroots. Um, uh, shout out to uh, Christina Navas and the SLPs of color, where mm-hmm. they started a petition um, regarding Asha's uh, response to uh, um, their statement on racism. And her petition went, I think, 18,000 uh, wow. signed yeah. it. And then what happened uh, after that, ASHA revised their uh, statement on social justice and racism. So um, quite a bit to be learned uh, and gathered on Instagram. I agree. I agree. Um, What was the last TV show or movie you streamed? Uh, The last TV show or movie I streamed. Um, Now, I'll have to think hard about this one because it's been a little while. It was either... um, is it the sound of metal? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I believe it was the sound of metal. Yes, mm-hmm. um, I was trying to in my um, multicultural issues and uh, human communication course. Um, I was trying to give them my top ten mm-hmm. uh, movies and films that all SLPs uh, should um, watch, and uh, that one I hadn't watched yet. So, mm-hmm. uh, a wonderful performance. Um, by Riz Ahmed, who I believe is mm-hmm. not. And now that's where we, we could talk about, you know, uh, should they have cast someone uh, mm-hmm. with a, uh, with a cochlear implant, but um, still mm-hmm. wonderful performance, very informative uh, film, but I believe that was the last one. Right. That's a good one. What's a favorite book? Oh, no shame. I'll have to set aside my own. Yes. <laughs> that that <laughs> sounds just so pandering. <laughs> Such a pandering so you're, thing. You're not going to say the telepractice, a clinical guide for speech language pathologists, just published with. Okay. From <laughs> Have I become publishing. that person? No. no. Oh, I hope not. You won't, um, you, won't, you won't say that one. I won't say that one. Um, but uh, my favorite book or the last book I read? Uh, my favorite just book? Favorite book. A, a favorite um, book. A favorite book. Um, I have a few. Um, Plan B by Sheryl Sandberg. I mm-hmm. believe she's still the CEO or COO of uh, 
Meta, is it called Meta? Meta now? now yeah. yeah. Um, but she um, has a, a book just about, you know, my, my whole career, my whole, is, mm-hmm. I think is, has been, you know, I've taken quite a few left turns by force, by choice sometimes. And she talks about that in, uh, in her text. And I love the cover of it. It's if you can visualize a cinder block or a cement block with a balloon attached to it, trying to go up. Uh, and that's kind of the premise of the book, you know, we will continue to rise. Um, so that's, uh, one of my favorites. And there's a book by, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, mm-hmm. between the world and me, He's a, a Howard university graduate also used kind mm-hmm. of talking about, um, just journeying through life and the stories he tells others and his son, um, about his journeys too. So two of my favorites. Awesome. Next question is, if you could create one law or behavior that everyone had to do, what would it be? Wow, we are going into fiction now, huh? Uh, (laughs) It's getting deep. (laughs) (laughs) All right, a single law or behavior that everyone needed to do, what would Mm -hmm. it be? Wow, I'm actually drawing a blank. And I'll have to say I'm a skeptic because I'm like, everyone's not going to do a single thing, but breathe um, until the, until we expire. Um, Wow. That would be interesting. I would, I might have to think about that when I'm not trying to plead the fifth. Um, You know, I, you know, I uh, am a a person that you love thy neighbor uh, comes up if, if, you know, sometimes it feels so overwhelming, especially now in today's times, mm-hmm. to think, you know, to take some of these huge concepts, huge things that are going on in the world and how we can um how we can change that. But I think if we just look to our left and the right, start there. Uh, I agree. Start there, you know. Um, and a lot of us would say these days with what's going on with mental health and what's going on even in our field with stress and uh, mm-hmm. workload and caseload, loving self, and then just look left and right, just start there. Uh, uh, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's see. Who would you like to have dinner with, dead or alive? Oh, I've heard this asked of others. I haven't thought about it with me, but um, who would I like to have dinner with, dead or alive? You know, I would say um, probably, you know, um, my my parents, you know, their career journeys um, have... Uh, uh, kind of mimic my mom uh, went back to school and um, became a registered nurse when I was five years old. I'm the youngest of five. So she raised children for almost 20 years and then put me on a bus and went to school. Um, and uh, But her mother, um, actually all of my grandparents, except for one, already passed away um, before I was born. So I would want to meet probably my grandmother on my mother's side uh, to hear her journey. Um, I know she was, uh, she worked inside the home uh, for her uh, entire life, but just to hear about her journey, um, about some of, uh, you know, her uh, successes and goals. And uh, because I believe we probably have a lot in common. Um, No, she maybe wouldn't have done telepractice for a living, (laughs) but I hope she would think it was interesting. And I'm I'm sure there were some things in, in her life that probably inspired me to be who I am. Very nice. Very good. I was kind of the same way. Didn't I, I knew one grandparent on each side, uh, and then they both died when I was fairly young. So, yeah, I know I know exactly how you feel. Um, ooh, what's the scariest thing you've ever done? And you can define scary any way you want. Ah, I would say I'm, uh, and this probably goes to my technology love of technology. I like. Uh, um, I'm very interested in in a lot of the uh, unknown and intangibles. I can't say I'm a huge risk taker, but the scariest thing that I've done, um, someone else could probably answer this for me better than I would be able to uh, to identify. But the scariest thing that I've done probably um, my doctorate, <laughs> <laughs> quit my job, yeah. uh, which I did. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of put my family and, you know, guess what? Mom's not working anymore. And I had to, you know, mm-hmm. we had to talk about that. We had to downsize our home. Um, right. you know, the, the real, the, you know, and sometimes we talk about the difficulties of, of, uh, pursuing what we want to do in this field. Mm-hmm. But, um, but for me, that was it after 20 years, um, 
uh, just kind of say that, you know, I'm going to do this and let's see um, where it takes me. And I don't uh, regret it. Um, I would do another telepractice study uh, today, but um, that was, that was something that was a, that was for me um, a leap of faith. Perfect. Just uh, as an aside, the number one answer for that question, uh-huh. having children. <laughs> <laughs> what does that say about me that I think having three boys is <laughs> easier? <laughs> easier than get a dis- than doing a doctor. Yeah, a I could see that. <laughs> uh, I have wonderful. My boys are they they really are. I guess I I can't say they are easy, um, especially in this field. And uh, I have one that's in college right now. I couldn't uh, convince him to be a speech pathologist. He's going to be um, a physician, but he will be a physician that. Uh, appreciates what we do. That's the hope. Yes. So <laughs> very good, very good. Um, what? Excuse me. Where is the most exotic or farthest place you've been? Uh, you know what? I uh, was able to take a trip uh, to the United Arab Emirates, uh, Abu Dhabi, and Dubai uh, mm-hmm. just a few years ago. Um, talk about what they're doing with technology there. I mean, literally mm-hmm. flying. Uh, cars for the policemen um, and uh, just just wonderful technological um, all around. Uh, having budgets of millions of dollars, I guess, would help with that yeah. a little bit. True, um, true. <laughs> but I did uh, sandboard in the dunes um, outside wow. Abu Dhabi. So well, that's really cool. Yes, I got a, a photo, and I yes, I did put it on Instagram uh, <laughs> to show uh, proof. But I would love to go there again. I know there are SLPs that are working uh, across the diaspora of you know the entire world. But um, what's going on in, in Egypt and Abu Dhabi with some of that technology? I think it would be very interesting to see. Yeah, awesome. If you didn't choose your current profession, what would you like to try? Uh, I would probably be where I was in, thought I was intended to go as a broadcast journalist. Um, I mm-hmm. actually entered my undergrad Howard University for that uh, reason. But then I heard, and some may know this name, Noma Anderson. Uh, mm-hmm. At the time, she was the chair of the Department of uh, Communication Sciences and Disorders at Howard. Um, but and, and during freshman orientation, so the first seven days, um, we take an orientation in the School of Communications. And, of course, broadcast journalism stands up and talks about how you know we have uh, journalists all over the major mm-hmm. and from Howard University and then others from uh, uh, you know, culture and communication studies. But then Noma Anderson stood up and said, you know what, we're the smallest department in all of uh, communications of Howard University. But if you're looking for something that combines communication, the sciences, if you're looking for somewhere where you can help someone from, uh, you know, from birth to death, uh, then come see me. And I did. And that was it. Very nice. That's a great story. Um, what's a pet peeve you have? Ah, pet peeve. Um, I would say, and I'm not going to put my husband and my kids aside, but I have for them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Nothing they would ever do would be a pet peeve, right? Not at all. That came first (laughs) to mind, though. For that question, they came first to mind. Um, But a pet peeve I have, um, oh, I would say traffic Mm -hmm. uh, and just rude behavior during traffic uh, after living in D.C. for six seven years, I've learned to just be patient. <laughs> but yes. now that uh, <laughs> but, I've, I've had that I, experience, have you maybe going mm-hmm. to Rockville or, or just anywhere regarding mm-hmm. the whole metropolitan Virginia, DC or Maryland, I think in here is, but um, just traffic. And then um, when the fast lanes don't go as fast and you're paying, you know, $12 to be in those HOB lanes. Uh, and, and they end up being not a good investment. That's <laughs> good one. Um, last question. Okay. If heaven exists, what would you want to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, first that, uh, that he that he can confirm that he did help me when I knew the internet wasn't working in that one session, and I prayed, please let this work. <laughs> that he can confirm, yep, Leslie, that was me. Like I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> we should put that on our troubleshooting list. Right. If all That's else right. fails, 
pray. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Some things we just can't explain, right? right. And we <laughs> divine intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, um, I would just say, you know, of course, the the well done, like good and faithful servant in many things in motherhood. Uh, of course, um, in being a uh, support to my family and wife and mother, but also that I, that, you know what, I remember that one client, uh, yeah, that, that you helped in a way uh, that, um, that, that was, uh, in, that made a meaningful impact. Um, and if it's just one, that's all right. Uh, that's enough for me. Leslie, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's been wonderful connecting with you and hearing about all the things you've been working on and continuing to work on. And I'm excited to see where everything goes. Uh, thank you, both Todd and Kim. It's been a pleasure uh, to speak with you today. Uh, and I hope uh, that we can see in, in person to maybe a hybrid uh, one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Hybrid podcast model. I like it. That was Dr. Leslie Edwards-Gaither. We really appreciate Leslie's insights on so many things, but especially how do we train and work with e-helpers, those support people on the other end of the session, so to speak, helping our our students, our clients access telepractice and access the services that we are providing. We need to think about this more carefully and make sure that we're training those individuals very, very well because Without them, our sessions just will not be as complete or as successful as we might want. And with that, we thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Please leave us a five-star review. That always helps us to attract new listeners and to expand our reach. And until next week, when we're back with another episode, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.